You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hey there, John. How are you? Hi, Glenn. How are you? I'm I'm getting by. I'm I'm overworked. I can't say I'm underpaid though, and that is a good thing. <laughs> Glenn Lowry here. This is the Glenn Show. Glenn and John, uh, John McWhorter's at Columbia. I'm at Brown. We're uh, the black guys at bloggingheads.tv. We're also the black guys at patreon.com forward slash Glenn Show. Every other week, you will find us here holding forth. Um, and uh, so we are here today holding forth about race, politics, culture, language, uh, every now and then something else. But uh, the question has arisen, John, as to whether or not we're over uh, overdoing the race thing and if it isn't time for us to find something else to talk about. What do you think? Well, I I don't quite understand that. I think that racism, you know, not, not race. I find that euphemistic. We're not talking about people's different skin colors, et cetera. Racism is a topic of great import in the United States, both in terms of the fact that it does exist, but I would say even more in the fact that the ways that we talk about it are often so diagonally related to the reality and opinions differ as to the appropriateness of that diagonality, as in how important is racism in the fate of Black America right now in the present tense, as opposed to in the past. I think these are urgent discussions, and I think that they are worth discussing because a certain segment might say we need to just get past race and not talk about it at all. But the truth is, out on the ground, a major segment of people, including the ones who are most influential in the world of letters and in the world of education, including of children, are never going to see it that way. It might be nice, but never will they See it that way. And so to decide that we're going to pretend that race doesn't exist for some overarching and probably very sophisticated reason would serve no purpose because there are too many smart, well-meaning human beings who could never come with us. So, no, um, I think we do need to keep talking about race. I think both you and I enjoy talking about other things such as economics and linguistics and popular culture, et cetera. And I, I frankly could. Yeah, I do a podcast about linguistics where I very studiously avoid talking about any of the stuff that you and I talk about here. But no, this is a this is an important topic, and there definitely needs to be a venue where black individuals who read a certain amount talk about these things in a way that most of our equivalents don't. We have to have our voice out here. It's not like we're the only ones, but still we are the minority and among the minority in this. And so yeah. No, 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 we're not going to get past race. And it has nothing to do with the fact that if we didn't talk about that, then we wouldn't, there'd be no use for the black guys at blogging heads. It's not that. These are important issues. So, yeah, that's, what do you, what do you think about the idea that we have to get past race? I can't okay. even rest to think about it. Well, a flippant, a flippant response would be uh, when the rest of the uh, dominant culture from Hollywood uh, to the uh, newsrooms of the Washington Post and New York Times, to the foundation uh, uh, lobbies of uh, the MacArthur Foundation and what else, uh, to the uh, political machinations of the Democratic Party. When they stop talking about race, I'll stop talking about race. Mm-hmm. Okay. In other words, you you wanted to make this into uh, the central question of American political culture. Uh, and then when I have a contrarian take on what you're saying, 
about that question. You tell me to shut up, move on and find something else to do. So that would be, but I say that that's kind of flippant because I think there is a, a, a legitimate uh, subtext to this question of why the black guys at Black Heads are always talking about, it, which is this, that the way we talk about it is reactionary. And by which I mean, right, we, yeah. are, we are the anti-woke black guys at bloggingheads.tv. Our whole energy comes in reaction to what other people are doing. Sometimes this criticism sneaks through when people say, well, what do you have to propose? What's your agenda? What's your positive plan? What are your policies? You don't like that. What would you have us do? Uh, and, and what they're saying is, uh, come on, okay, you've made your point. Uh, Ibram X. Kendi is an empty suit, <laughs> quote unquote. Okay, that's that's an inside joke, people. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, et cetera, et cetera. You've made your point about ta Coach. You've made your point about the people with three names. Who even knows who Michael Eric Dyson is anymore? You've made your point about et cetera. Uh, you are, you got a PhD in linguistics, McWhorter. You got a PhD in economics, Lowry. What do you think about the tax cuts? What do you think about the, you know, in, in other words, can you please move on to something else? Or if you want to talk about race, can you please do it in a constructive and affirmative register rather than in a reactionary, uh, register? And moreover, they're saying, I know why you haven't moved on. You haven't moved on because you got a grift. You, you, you got a stick and you're going to um, uh, use it for all it's worth. And you've got conservatives who are titillated by what you have to say. And that titillation boosts your egos, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there's a sense of you guys are too smart to limit yourself to just the race agenda. Uh, you guys, if you were going to be responsible uh, in uh, responsibly engaged in this conversation, ought to have something constructive to say, not just do it in reaction. Now, actually, what do you believe? What do you stand for, et cetera, et cetera? You say this. You say structural racism is a is an empty uh, argument. Well, what's your interpretation of the racial legacy of American slavery, et cetera? It, you know, things like this. You see the the tone of this kind of criticism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's nothing to that whatsoever? Um, I understand where people like that are coming from, but in a way, you have to pull the camera back in terms of, I think, what both you and I have done. And the thing is, I completely understand why a person might not do that, because there's so much that we have to pay attention to. And I don't think that the people who are saying this to us are haters in particular, but you only know so much about most people. You, you, you might be really obsessed with two or three people, and it's probably not us. But the idea that we shouldn't obsess with this, I live that in that if I'm not doing this, I have a show called Lexicon Valley that I do at Slate. Okay. And don't mean this. You very easily probably think that Lexicon Valley is a show about race and language, that I'm talking about people using the N-word, that I'm talking about how wonderful black English is. No. Lexicon Valley is a race-neutral show where I quite openly and deliberately avoid talking about issues of personhood and ambiguity and feelings because I want it to just be a linguistics geek show. Every now and then I take a deep breath and I say, okay, folks, I'm going to, I need to say something about black English for this one. We need to talk about the N-word for this one. To be honest, I just laid down the 122nd episode. I've done three like that because the statement is, I am a human being going through the world who enjoys thinking about some things. And there is linguistics, which is as deeply meaningful to me as anything about 
you know, Nicole Anna Jones, et cetera. Then we do this, and this is meaningful too, but we lead whole lives. For me, the problem would be if we only ever did this and we only ever had done this. And as I've said on this show, I'm always a little bit perplexed at the kind of person who doesn't do anything but race ever for their whole career. I just wonder, wouldn't they get bored? I would. So yeah, this is just one part, but this is a necessary part. I feel like if I, the last Lexicon Valley is about how you make verbs negative in various languages of the world. I'm talking about Mandarin, et cetera. If I only did that, I would feel kind of disloyal. I would feel like I, I need to get my licks in about these race Lexicon issues. Lexicon Valley at Slate, 122 episodes. How long have you been doing this, John? I've been doing that since the summer of 2016, every two weeks. It is a labor of love. And Five that years, twice a mm-hmm. month. Yeah. And it's, um, and it gets around and it's, it teaches people about language and linguistics. And they're people who have no idea that I do this, who, you know, like Lexicon Valley. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's been a ride. And that's another thing that people like us do. So I think a certain kind of person sees us sitting in our study and doing this and thinking, well, that's it. But no, like some people even ask me, how do you deal with your students? How do they respond to your views about race? And it's because they think that I teach sociology courses where I talk about this. No, we're bifurcated. You know, we, we lead multiple lives. And so that's one of my answers to people like that. When I'm standing in front of students, I'm talking about verbs and how language changes and not, not the N-word. So, you know, you have to see this in full. I could give a similar account. I don't have a podcast where I talk only about economics, but I do talk often only about economics, especially with my students, my graduate students and whatnot. And I have a, I have a high profile as a technical economist and the, all of the accolades to, I could list them, but then, you know, how that would sound. So I won't, but you can <laughs> easily look me up and figure it out. I'm a real academic economist. Um, but I also teach about things that are not economics, but that are not about race. So let me just quickly uh, tell you what I'm doing uh, in my undergraduate teaching this semester, uh, a 20 student seminar where uh, we're examining the question of free inquiry in the modern world, beginning with Plato, the Apology of Socrates, moving on to Milton, John Milton, uh, the Areopagitica, where he uh, argues to the uh, English parliament against the licensing of the printing of books by the government. Uh, uh, moving on to John Stuart Mill on liberty, which my young students are devouring voraciously, and they have such clever things to say about utilitarianism. That's a great read, yeah. About utilitarianism as a philosophical foundation for the argument of uh, free speech and and unencumbered expression and of idea and exchange of of view and whatnot. This is John Milton. We're going to go on. We're going to read Leo Strauss, Persecution and the Art of Writing. This is a relatively obscure mm-hmm. 20th century philosopher, relatively conservative philosopher, who argues that philosophers uh, in uh, times of government tyranny had to write in uh, esoteric ways so that their true meaning would not necessarily be directly evident to the to the censors and the, the, the guys that burn you at the stake and cut your head off. Um, their true meaning could have to allow them plausible deniability plausible deniability of their atheism or plausible deniability of their uh, belief in, in modern ideas, which were still uh, not yet accepted by uh, the powers that be. The relevance of that to the present time. Uh, we're reading George Orwell. We're reading Vaclav Havel. 
Uh, we're reading uh, Alan Bloom. You know, this is this is a seminar in, in which you know people are reading difficult texts, and then we're parsing them. Um, and you know, that's one of the things I do amongst many, many, many other things. <laughs> but I would say this in defense of uh, the black guys at bloggingheads.tv uh, race beat. The public discussion about racial issues is in such deep trouble. It is so hedged in. It's so um, uh, uh, delimited by the a kind of uh, cancel culture uh, driven political correctness that uh, there's just a desperate need for counterpoint. Uh, so we're we're doing a service, I think, by. Uh, offering a platform where there is a sustained, uh, coherent articulation of a counterpoint. And the mm-hmm. fact that we're Black is absolutely uh, essential to the effectiveness of that program. We'd already be canceled if we were white. Don't you think? Ben, can I can I ask you something, yeah. actually, in relation to this? This is important. Um. It's funny, right before we started today, um, I got a flash of an email, and it's an email that I'm realizing I'm seeing either as email or on Twitter daily, several times a day, which is that another way we need to mix it up is we need to have people on and have these friendly debates. People seem to really want that. And somebody wrote suggesting that we have somebody on who I am not going to name. It's a little too... We do too much of the ad hominem stuff, and so I'm not okay. going to name who it is, but it's somebody we both know, and it's somebody who I know despises me. And I think a lot of people looking from the outside think that there are disagreements among black academics that can be peacefully hashed out in a setting like this. And I don't think they realize that for an awful lot of black academics, these things go beyond just disagreements about philosophy. These people think that we're scum and therefore the idea of there being a debate isn't going to happen. And on that, and I hope I'm not calling you out on this, but I have over my transom from last week, something that you happen to have never said to me. Is it true that at Brown, when you teach courses on race issues, that black students tend not to take the courses and that you have on good authority, that it's because other black professors at Brown tend to tell the students to steer clear of you because your views aren't the proper ones. Because if that's true, I want you to say so because it'll demonstrate to some of the people out there sitting and peacefully wondering why we don't have more people like that on the show, how deeply despicable our views are to a great many thoroughly reasonable people who write real books and real articles, who I think a lot of these people think would just civilly come onto the show with a cup of coffee and debate us when, as far as they're concerned, we stink. Is that true about black faculty at Brown? I I want to be very careful how I respond because there's what I believe and then there's what I know. Okay. Okay. So let me tell you what I know. Uh, two things. One is I know that my courses on race, for example, the course I'm teaching right now, Economics 1070, Race, Crime, and Punishment in America, which has 80 or so students subscribed, has a statistically low representation of Black students in it. That is statistically low 
relative to the proportion of black students who are in the student body, whatever that number is, let's say it's 10%. I don't know the number offhand, but it'll be something like that. There are fewer than 10% of my students in that course who are black, but also low given the subject matter because, you know, race, crime and punishment in America. It should be half black. Yeah. Taught by a black professor. Let me just observe. There aren't so many of us in the economics department teaching such courses. I'm the only one. Um, And on a campus where there's keen interest in the subject matter, just let the police commissioner from New York City try to give a lecture on this campus and see how students react. So it's not like people are not interested in the subject matter. So it's an underrepresentation. It's a significant underrepresentation. It is significant both in numerical terms, but also in terms of the substance of the class. Um, We need a robust number of African-American students in the class in order for the discussion of these questions that we are taking up to be as vital as it should and could be, to be as pedagogically pedagogically enriching for everybody concerned. We need it to have like, so that's too bad, too bad that they're not coming to my class in numbers any greater than they are in fact coming. So that's one thing I know. The other thing I know is that when I uh, took aside and a black student with whom I had become friendly, who was taking my class, this is a couple of years ago, and who would come up to the front of the room when we were allowed to actually meet students in rooms. I and, that. Uh, yep. Yeah, so do I. And, and, you know, hang with me for 15 minutes if I had the time after class arguing with me because he disagreed with pretty much everything that I was saying, but he could tell that he was learning something in the class because what he believed is what every other class that he had been taking had been saying in monolithic uh, fashion. And he had never had to have an argument. This is John Stuart Mill. John Stuart Mill teaches us that even if we know the truth, if we never have to face an argument contrary to what we believe to be true, we'll know the truth as dead dogma, not, not as a living knowledge. We'll know the truth as the, as, as, encanting a mantra, not knowing the truth in terms of being able to articulate why what we believe to be true is true. So uh, this young man could recognize that I was enriching him, not changing his mind, but making him sharper witted at being able to articulate why he believed what he believed. And he appreciated me. And I said, yo, uh, young fella, this is a brother <laughs> from, from the hood in, in New York City. Uh, where that, Where are your fellow students, where are your your friends? students. Yeah. He said, oh man, the word is out on you. Hmm. The word is wow. out on you. you. You know, you uncle Tom, I mean, the word is out on you. I mean, and people, so now that's two things. One of it is student culture. The kids are in a clique in terms of racial identity within the student body. And if you took Lowry's class, they're going to, you know, uh, uh, they're going to, uh, look at you askance because you you took Lowry's class. You come back, well, Professor Lowry said this, and you know, then you're in bad order with your students. But it also probably, and this is what I don't know but suspect to be true, reflects what some of my prominent uh, colleagues who will go unnamed here, of course, have to say to students when they come for counsel. Well, I'm thinking about what I should be taking next semester. Should I take this or should I take that? I imagine that they are not being counseled. Oh, yeah, you got to hear Lowry. You got to hear Lowry. Lowry is one of the most prominent people talking about these things. You are brown. You're interested in race and Afro-American studies, and you haven't heard from Lowry. You can't leave here without hearing from Lowry. Somehow, I don't think that speech is being given, (laughs) okay, by the unnamed colleagues who I won't name because I won't name them. (laughs) But I don't know that. I have not overheard it. I don't have a microphone in the office when the, you know, when the conversation is taking place. So there's what I suspect. 
and I don't want to uh, slander my colleagues, but you know, let me let me put it this way. <laughs> I'm not having any constructive conversations with my colleagues about these matters either. You know, I mean, I and we are tearing it up, uh, not only on social media, but also in print and elsewhere, raising deep questions. I hope they're deep questions, interesting questions. Other people's responses tell me that they're interesting questions around the very issues that many of my colleagues of color and otherwise who are progressive on the race questions are deeply concerned about. Do I get a letter saying, uh, oh, I read your piece and I thought it was right, wrong, indifferent or whatever. Here's a counter argument or whatever. Let's have coffee and discuss or whatever. No. I'm OK with that. I'm, 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 I'm fine with that. I got a life. I'm good. But uh, no. Yeah. See, now this I want our audience to just take that in because I can see that if you don't know the tenor of that, you listen to me and Glenn here talking. Yes, I know Glenn and I listen to Lexicon Valley and you'll learn why that rule doesn't make any sense. Right. Me and Glenn are sitting here talking and it's just I'll bet us. you in sentences with, sentences with prepositions sometimes too, don't you, John? All the time. <laughs> <laughs> I like to. <laughs> but the um, we're sitting here talking and we and we're talking down these various people and we never bring anybody else in. I hope you know that in a different world, we would be more inclined, but that a lot of these people would not, you know, sit and write back, oh, yes, let's come discuss, you know, race and crime. Let's discuss George Floyd. Those people would never come anywhere near us. And I'm not saying that as a boo-hoo sort of thing. This has been my reality for 25 years now. I can't imagine it any other way. Believe me, I've moved on. I'm telling you this because given what you just heard about how Glenn is seen, you know, the word is out on you, et cetera. You have to understand that there's certain debates that just could never happen. And it's not that Glenn and I are close to it. Me and Glenn are close to it. It's, it's that. So we end up sort of fashioning the debate by sort of bringing up the specter of the person and arguing their points. And that must look kind of like we're using them as pinatas, but yeah. And so that email that I got this morning, I thought, you know, with all due respect, does this person really think that that person would have anything to do with us? The person in question is somebody who on NPR once spoke to me very sharply in a, it is a very, you know, NPR cozy kind of conversation. You know, you know, the, 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 the Saturday night live skit about the air of NPR with the people with their hands over these mugs and, you know, the big sweaters, et cetera. This is NPR. And at one point I said a little something and this person, you know, spoke sharply just just for a bit, but spoke sharply. It was really not needed. And I just kind of tried to ride over it. And later that person excerpted exactly that exchange on their website. They were proud of it. So that person isn't going to debate us. That's just not the way these things work. So here we are. And it's just Glenn and me. And, um, yeah, I just wanted, I hadn't known that Glenn and I just wanted to hear you say it. Somebody told me and I thought, wow, is it that bad? It's probably that way with me too. I have, I don't know definitely, but there must be some of that. So yeah, people are very emotional about these things. It's not just intellectual. There's emotion in us too. So I just want to get that out there. I don't think it's only a characterological issue that people are in some way or another childish not sufficiently uh, mature uh, intellectually. I mean, I I think there's a structural thing that goes on here because we are the black guys. And, and, uh, uh, you know, if you're making an argument 
against affirmative action, against reparations, uh, against critical race theory, uh, an argument that in any way is supportive of something that conservatives might be inclined to say about one thing or another. If you're singling people out, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Ibram Kendi, uh, uh, Tom Hasse Coates or whatever, and you're saying they fall short in one way or another, and you're black, then that act, whatever your intentions may be, has its own life. It has its own consequence in terms of the larger cultural dynamic. You authorize something, okay? Because no longer is it easily uh, uh, deflected, such a criticism or observation, by an imputation of racially unsavory motive to the speaker. If the white guy says it, if uh, Brett Stevens at the New York Times decides to take after the 1619 Project, you know, you can maybe kind of dismiss him effectively by saying, you know, uh, that his lack of wokeness is uh, a kind of privilege of whiteness and a kind of reflection of his uh, general lack of interest in the well-being of the people who have been oppressed or his failure to understand the true resonance of the historical dominations or whatever, whatever, you know, you can be in a way dismissive of him. You can put him down. You can shut him up. If he stands up in a meeting, I can imagine this happening at the New York Times. I can imagine, well, I used to be able to imagine it happening as it is now, given what well, they gone push on. him out the window. Literally. Exactly. So now everybody has learned that lesson. You know, uh, Brother McNeil, the, whom we, we will talk about later, uh, has learned that lesson and they, they won't speak up at all. But, 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 but if uh, Charles Blow, God bless him, were to stand up in a meeting and he say, you know, I think there might be something to this uh, uh, criticism. Well, he's not going to do that because he's Charles Blow. But if you and I were in the room for as, as long as we lasted, we, we well might stand <laughs> up and say something like that. Uh, it would completely change the conversation. Let me give you an analogy. You're the linguist, but I'm going to go on here about language for just this one minute. A bunch of men in the locker room talking about uh, scoring. Okay? There are things that you can and can't say uh, acceptably. You, you can't use the B word, even with a bunch of men. And, you know, you can't. I mean, you will, your reputation will be tarnished. Uh, you'll be, you know, thought less of if you do. That's one thing. But if there's a woman in the conversation, a single woman present, that completely changes the rules of the game, which men are prepared to enforce on each other about what can be said. Because the meaning of having said it in the presence of the woman is different than the meaning of saying it to a gender, a single gender uh, assembly. So acceptable speech is conditional on the social composition of the audience. Okay, that's mm -hmm. the general principle that I'm advancing here. So in the national discourse, when you and I join the audience and voices as black people that resonate with things that are unspeakable from the point of view of other black people, especially if white people were to say it, uh, we change the rules. We, we move the whole center of the conversation. We uh, elicit responses from our audience uh, that are uh, indicative of a sense of liberation. People are saying, I feel now empowered that I can say things, in effect, they're saying, that I couldn't have said before because I know that I'm not a racist when I say them since I've heard you say the very same things. And that is what people fear the most. Uh, you know, they, they, 
And, and that is what is infuriating to him. It's loyalty. It's a sense of betrayal. It's, it's a traitorous uh, role that we're playing. Either we're ignorant of it or worse, we're completely aware of it and are nevertheless willing to go down that road. That's shameful. That's a, that is uh, irresponsible. It is reckless. It is, et cetera. And, you know, there's, there's something else that was perfectly, perfectly put, and it crystallizes something that I'm not sure people fully realize or they think it went out with the Jeffersons, which is that a lot of black people think, if you express the sorts of views that you're talking about as a black person, that you are dog whistling to the hard right, that you are specifically, it took me years to figure out that people actually meant this when I started. They think that what you're doing is you're hoping to angle for high speaking fees with white audiences because white people want to hear these things. You're trying to line your pockets. And that's the way they think that you're saying these things so that you can go out every two weeks and make $20,000. So they think that your uncle Tom, that term is relatively obsolete at this point, but it's, it took me a while to figure out a lot of black people genuinely think that there's a such thing as a Judas who goes out and says things that they don't believe or only half believe because white people like it. And maybe for some reason you have a problem with black people of some kind. Now it's one thing to say, Oh, that's ridiculous. But it's another thing to realize that whether or not it's ridiculous, there are a lot of people who genuinely think it. And it's interesting because so many people, including people with doctorates, are under the impression that that kind of black person exists, this Judas figure. I think part of it has to do with the role of Christianity in the culture. You're Judas. So many people believe that, that you have to open up your mind to the possibility that maybe it does. And I would say that since the year 2000, like you, I've met all of the card-carrying black conservatives and you know spoken to most of them at length. I mean, you name it. Clarence Thomas, Ward Connerly, Larry Elder, Carol Swain, Shelby Steele, Walter Williams, Tom Sowell, Armstrong Williams. Those eight are the ones that just come to mind. Known them all. Sat in green rooms. This is not bragging. I'm not talking about that I've known famous people. I'm making a specific point. You get to know all of these people. You hear them. You hear them speak themselves out. None of them are Uncle Tom. None of those people are saying the things that they say because they want to line their pockets and please white people. It just doesn't work. They're all very different people. If anything, I would say that what all of them have in common um, or had, if Walter Williams is no longer with us, but all of them are very confident people. The people who say these things that they're not self-hating, they don't hate themselves at all. They're actually people with strong egos and strong intellectual confidence, but they're not Judas. I've never met this person. And I've always been kind of waiting. Yeah, there are one or two of those people where I kind of thought, is this Judas? Is this this person where if you kind of scratch the surface, you see that what he's really doing is a hustle? No, that person doesn't exist. And I think a lot of you listening to this know that. But there are a lot of other people out there who really think that that's what Glenn and I are. And if we are that, why would you want to come anywhere near us? So, yeah, that is um, that's a major issue. I wish I do have to be prescriptive here. I wish that black people would get past that Judas idea. No, that doesn't mean I don't like black people. I'm not calling it a pathology. I understand where that view comes from, partly because it's spread so far and wide, including by college professors talking to undergraduates. But that Judas doesn't exist. 
I, can, so, I think I can confidently say that that person does not exist among people who have our sorts of views. And yet there are a lot of people who genuinely think they've got it figured out and think that Judas exists and is talking to think tanks. So, yeah, it's a shame. I wish that that strain would go away. Um, I know most of the people that or have had occasion to know yeah. uh, these people. And I, I agree with your characterization. Um, I'm especially uh, disconcerted about the way in which Justice Clarence Thomas is written out of the legitimate discourse about what African-Americans think and do, uh, because he's one of the most significant black people of the 20th slash 21st century uh, in American life. And his story is extremely interesting and powerful. And his his philosophy, which one obviously does not have to agree with, he's at the right wing of the American jurisprudential community in terms of how he thinks about the law. And that's okay. Uh, you know, but, um, it, it, it is just in my mind, a trivialization of the really interesting nuances of American political culture that he should be written out of the conversation as a black Judas. Uh, the, the other thing I wanted to say is, of course, you're not dissing black people when you make these observations because this is a universal phenomenon. Try being a Cuban uh, second-generation immigrant who hmm. uh, thought that Castro had something good to say that the Cuban Revolution was a decent, uh, ev- you know, development of of, uh, of the political dynamic of the Western Hemisphere in the late 1950s and the early 1960s. Such people exist, but I, I am sure they're held in very poor odor in, um, you know, Little Havana in uh, Miami or whatever. Mm-hmm. Try try being a Jew who actually thinks the occupation is an abomination, uh, who who thinks that it's a it's a apartheid reincarnate. That such people exist. Uh, they're held in very bad odor in many quarters within uh, within the Jewish community and so forth. So it's not it's not a uniquely black no thing that uh, there would be Judas like allegations thrown around and excommunications enacted against people who fell afoul of them. The mm-hmm. other thing I want to say, and I don't know if you know this book, it's a half century old now, Exit, Voice, and Loyalty. This is Albert Hirschman. It's a beautiful book. No. Published, I think, in 1969 or 1970. And I won't try to summarize it except to say this. Exit, Voice, and Loyalty. Okay, so you're within an organization. It could be a political party. It could be a business. Uh, it, it could be an ethnic group. It could be a church. It, it, some kind of organization, which has a corporate uh, identity and presence, but you think it's off the rails. You think things could be done better. You, you think the union is about to strike and that that's a mistake because the strike fund is low and because the bosses have made a reasonable offer. Okay. You, you, you think that uh, black politics is uh, too much focused on victimhood and you think that we need to focus on development of our people. Discrimination is mostly a thing of the past et cetera, et cetera. Do you think, as I say, that Israel's got the wrong policy or that they they have nuclear weapons and they're the most powerful, it's, you know, whatever you think, okay? And you're out of step, okay? So you really have a choice. You can either voice your objection contra the party line or you can exit the organization. And by the way, staying and shutting up and saying nothing is a kind of exit, mm-hmm. okay? So exit versus voice. Withdraw or speak up, okay? Now, if you speak up, you can anticipate, since what you have to say is against the party line, that you're going to get blowback. It's going to be costly to you. Your dinner party invitations are going to dry up. 
That's the least of it. Okay. You're going to be an Uncle Tom. You're going to be an Oreo. You're going to be a self-hating Jew. That's costly. Who's willing to pay the cost? Only those who are really loyal to the group. Loyalty is not blind affirmation of the nostrums coming from the front office. Loyalty is the courage to articulate criticisms which you can anticipate will not be kindly received, but which nevertheless you think must be heard. True loyalty. So so the irony here is that the Judas accusation is exactly wrong. It's exactly wrong. Not the person is not a traitor for telling you what you don't want to hear, but what, what what needs to be said. The person who does that, who enacts that kind of criticism, is engaging in a heroic enterprise. The mm-hmm. enterprise of trying to save the organization from its own worst instincts by incurring the wrath of the majority, John Stuart Mill. Vaclav Havel, he's a dissident in uh, Central Eastern Europe in the days of Samistad and the Soviet domination, and yet he speaks out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's true loyalty. Okay, so, so these dissidents, and you and I are among them, are not traitors and they're not grifters. They're people who actually love their country and love their people enough yeah. to be able to say what they believe to be true about the conditions of their country and yeah. their people. That is a very important point. And actually, I feel moved to say that I base a lot of my new book, and yeah, I'm, I'm going to push it. It's called The Elect, and I'm publishing it in segments at johnmcwater.substack.com. And I should let you guys know, I am no longer charging money for the book. I decided that wasn't the right strategy. Now I'd like you to subscribe to my Substack in general, because I'm finding that instead of writing one just general Substack piece a week, I'm addicted. I'm writing like three. And so that's my newsletter. And so, you know, give me a little money for that. But the book you can have along with all of the rest of it. I'm going to lay down the third segment of it next week, but now there are two up. But I say this because at one point in the elect, in the beginning, I say a lot of people are going to say that it's disloyal of me to write a book against hyper wokeness and its implications for black people. And I say, no, no, that what I'm doing is something that I regard as a service to people of my race quite directly and not just as a kind of a faint, not just as an afterthought. I think to myself, I've got to defend black people from all of this infantilization, from all of this double talk, from all of this misleading rhetoric, because I'm not sure that anybody white who did it would be listened to. As Glenn is saying, if you're white and you say it, you're a racist. If you're black, you can be called a Judas. But you know, the truth is, the truth is, for every black person who really thinks that people like me and Glenn are walking around rubbing our hands together and, you know, making all the, apparently all this money with speaking fees, there are other black people who know. They'll say, you know, you're self-hating, you're an Uncle Tom. They know it's not true. It's, it's, it's a very messy, cartoonish charge. And so maybe we get listened to a little bit more. But yeah, for example, I'm not writing the elect thinking of myself as this noble soul on walking forward. I'm writing because I'm just mad. But it's a service to black people. So, for example, if societal conditions, both in history and in the present, make it so that in many school districts, black boys are more likely to be violent in school than other boys, which is true. 
then a whole dialogue that we're encouraged to have that implies that if more black boys are suspended than any other boys, it must be due to racism and over-discipline. This isn't to say that over-discipline is an utterly meaningless phenomenon, but if the idea is that the statistics mean racism, therefore, what happens is that school districts start pulling back on suspending black boys who engage in violence in school, which means that especially because generally most of the kids in those schools in question are black and Latino, and the sorts of people who engage in this dialogue are also the first people to tell you about segregation. So you can't deny that the kids in the school are the same color as the violent boys. If those boys are kept in school, then they keep perpetrating violence against their fellow black students. <laughs> I think some people think it would be almost just desserts if they're being violent against white students, because on a certain critical race theory level, the white students deserve it. But no, no, it's other black and Latino students who are getting beaten up by this minority of violent black boys. No, I'm not saying it's inherent to black boys to be violent. Notice that I said in the beginning, the reasons for all of that are conditioned by things in the past, things in the present, many of which I would readily call racism. But on a given Tuesday afternoon, if as a result of those things, there's a boy who is beating the hell out of people. Well, the people he's beating the hell out of and keeping from getting a good education are other black people. And half of them are girls. Yeah. So, this whole business, there are people who have been, now I sound like I'm accusing people of being hustlers, so I won't say it that way. There are people who dedicate themselves sincerely to arguing that disproportionate rates of suspension of black boys is due to racist attitudes against black boys. And you have to think about that. That's something to think about, especially 30 or 40 years ago. But today, often, if you go with that, and this has been proven several times, there are like four studies that I know of, you end up perpetrating violence against black kids in the schools. So everybody, you know, walks around feeling good that they've decried racism in some other way once yeah. again, while this poor black girl is having her grades pulled down, not to mention, you know, being beaten up by people who should have been suspended despite the fact that they're black and that black people have had a hard time in this society. So I say this, this is one thing I mentioned in the elect. Now, if a white person says that they're a racist, apparently, well, then I'm going to say it because I'm protecting that girl. I'm protecting black kids in those schools. I'm not writing this so that Laura Ingram will have me on TV. I'm writing it because black people are suffering. And I mean that. But that is the position that we're in, that I need to say this, that I would even need to specify it. This is why debate between black people of different views is not like debate between white people on different views about I don't know, Aryanism or environmental policy or whether we should eliminate the electoral college. It's not like that when it comes to black issues. There are personal issues that come into it. I guess that's the theme of our episode. But yeah, I think people really do need to understand that. It's easy to miss that from the outside, I think. I would just add this addendum. Not only are the other black students in the classroom who might be preyed upon or whose education is disrupted being injured. The kids who are actually acting out violently are not being well served either. Mm -mm. To diagnose their uh, uh, outcome suspended because of violent behavior as an expression of racism, to misdiagnose it as that is to direct your remedial attention to uh, the uh, re-education of the teachers and the uh, guidance counselors and the principals of these schools to disabuse them of their privilege and whiteness and their racism 
as opposed to looking into what did or did not happen in the lives of those young men, young boys, that caused them to become such disruptive and violent actors, the few of them who are so, in the classroom in the first place. Whatever's going on in their homes, in their neighborhoods, what what might the school have done differently to uh, head off and, and so forth this expression of behavior? So it's it's profoundly wrongheaded in a number of dimensions. And And who's comforted by it? The people who get to crow about having fought racism are comforted by it. But the hard, heavy lift of actually dealing with the behavior of those boys is completely avoided. Yep. I remember so. being at a, a race and education conference. I forget why I was at this particular conference, but I'm going to take off the labels because I don't want to be ad hominem. But I remember I was sitting, listening to a talk given by an earnest, about 40-year-old black scholar where they were making the fascinating point that the more violence that there is in a school, the less learning goes on. They had actually gone. To <laughs> no, to you do say. <laughs> <laughs> they actually went to the trouble to prove it. And there are all these statistics. And I thought, okay. well, okay. So yes, that, that is a problem. But then the very next talk was by the equivalent of that person talking about racism against black boys. And, you know, just the phrase racism, it's you in the belly. Black hits you in the belly again. Boys, you feel bad about the black boys. Richard Wright, racism yeah. against black boys. And so you can imagine what that talk was and, you know, it's a bit over-disciplined, et cetera. But how did that fit in with the talk that had come right before? And, of course, nobody thought about it, and I didn't say anything. It would be like, you know, blowing on a tuba in the middle of a funeral. But those things are directly contradictory. The people at this conference thought of themselves as on the side of those black boys, but they weren't, because if you know that the violence keeps black boys from learning, then what are you talking about it being bigotry that the black boys are being removed from the school? Or is it really that there are an equal number of white boys who are doing the same thing, people named Justin and Caleb, and they're not being taken out of the schools? Are there Asian boys doing the same thing who are allowed to stay? Hell no. Hell no. Everybody knew. That's the sort of thing that I feel like we need to protect our own people from. So, yeah, yeah, racism against black boys. But, Glenn, before we go, let's do on the New York Times and Donald. Yeah, I, I just want to say one thing before we do it. I do want to do that. And this is very brief, but this this just harks back to talking about we're not doing this in order to get paid. And I got to tell you this anecdote because you'll appreciate it, John. So a couple of years ago, I got called from one of these speakers bureaus about, do you want to do an Australia tour? Ooh. It was going to be Brisbane. Uh, it was going to be Sydney. It was going to be Perth. So far away. It was going to be Canberra. Okay. We're going to be over there for 10 days. Okay. Uh, as a, as a tag team with, uh, Dr. X to be not named. Okay. A prominent, uh, woke African American public intellectual. Uh, and what would it cost for us to get you on the team? I was asked. So I'm saying, damn, Australia. God, it takes two days to get there and another day to recover from getting there. Yeah. 10 days in Australia traveling all around. You know, a dog and pony show, whatever, whatever. And then I thought, what is the number? And I just thought I, there couldn't be a number high enough to name. And so I said, why don't you just pay me whatever you're paying the other guy? That doesn't mean that it's a man, okay? Whatever you're paying the other person. Just pay me that. Because I was curious. A week went by. Hmm. And I got the reply, I'm afraid that our sponsor's budget won't accommodate that. Wow. Okay? So I'm just saying. Mm. <laughs> That's a true story, man. <laughs> Just imagine how much whoever that is 
is making. <laughs> and they're flying whoever that is over their business class, and it might as well be to Mars. Yeah, that's right. It's so far. Yeah. Business no, class just... to Australia is a minimal necessity. First class would be much preferred, although it costs way, way, way too much. I've turned down Australia two times because of, of that. Yeah, just the thought that it if takes I forever can... to get there. I've been there several times, but uh, not for my... money. Not for that's money. A, in a flying tube? Wow. Oh, yeah. yeah that's it's, just... it's forever. Yeah. Anyway, Donald McNeil. Is yeah. that his name? Go mm-hmm. ahead. What, you want to set it up or? Yeah. Um, he ends up having to resign. Because he referred to the N-word. This is uh, a uh, science editor. Is he at the New York Times? I'm sorry. I I don't know all the facts. He had, um, especially last year, did really good work on the pandemic. He's 67, so he's had a long career. Been there 40 years, if I'm not mistaken. Decades, yeah. And his career ends with him leaving in disgrace because, you know, that that cabal that seems to exist at the Times, these quote-unquote young staffers, a letter signed by 150 people taking issue. And to be fair, not only with that word, but apparently he had said some things that go against the current orthodoxy um, in the past. That, that, but, that word was the N word, which he used in yeah. describing someone else's use. Right, right. He, so he, he enunciated the N word, not on his own account, yes. only by way of telling us what's, what someone else had said. Mm-hmm. And you know what I find? You know, we could go on a whole rant about, you know, certain people, et cetera. This is the thing that I take away from it. I wrote a piece. Anybody knows how I feel about that. I wrote it on Substack and I just made my case. And I was interested in the discussion of it because an awful lot of people, and I don't know whether this is willful. I hope it's willful because if it's real, it scares me. A lot of people really refuse to make the difference between the use of the word and referring to it. And insisted that I was saying that it was okay for white people to walk around using the N-word. As if I had just said, oh, come on, they can use it. Whereas I was making the more specific point that to refer to it is something which I vividly remember as late as the early 2000s was considered okay in polite company. You don't overdo it, but the idea that you cannot enunciate those sounds unless you're a black person using it to mean buddy. That was not the case even 20 years ago. Something has set in since then. And I was just saying that I think it's gone too far that somebody would get fired, which he essentially was, for that. And for a lot of people, it's clear. Talk about the emotion that all of this is is processed with. This kind of the theme of this this episode is that a lot of people reading what I wrote seem to really have thought that I meant that white people are supposed to be able to walk around saying the N-word all the time, whereas I meant, no, the issue of reference and had to specify. And this just shows that there are people who are spraying for heresy. And they're not all black in this case. We're really talking about that whole elect crowd. They're just waiting for it. They've got that spray bottle ready. And so somebody black says they shouldn't have been fired for referring to the N-word. And they're so angry. They are so tripwire set to explode at our heresy that they actually neglect to see that I'm making a more specific point than just the use of the word. That scares me. I don't believe that they don't understand the difference. They get, they understand the difference. They're missing it because they're so very, very aroused. That's the sort of thing that we're dealing with. Um, Dean Beckett, the, um, uh, guy who runs the show over there at the New York Mm -hmm. Times, um, is reported to have said in the context of this Donald McNeil situation that 
his intent was irrelevant or words to that effect. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what he meant. The fact is it's intolerable that such utterances should take place because I complete the sentence here. It's hurtful to other people. Mm-hmm. So the enunciation of the word in that context was hurtful. And the driving engine of the rebuke here is the feelings of people who heard the word uttered, not the intention of the person who spoke it. And in his mea culpa, uh, Donald McNeil reinforces this. He should have been more sensitive. His fault was not so much the act itself, but the presumption which he took upon himself that he would be permitted to undertake the act because Mm -hmm. he knows that he actually didn't mean any harm in so doing, but his ignorance of the possibility of the harm done by him speaking in this way is a a firing offense in and of itself. Now that should tariff that, that kind of behavior in a major institution of cultural production in this country should terrify all of us. Yes. You think you think it ends there? Which huttery afoot? Just change the script. Suppose the country is at war and we're talking about something that somebody utters that's contrary to our consensual agreement about what the national interest might be. Um, suppose there's an attack on the Capitol and somebody wants to say that not everybody who was present there is equally guilty of the offense of having uh, uh, participated in an insurrection. Suppose there's an election and you actually like the guy who lost narrowly, but you happen to work in a university where people will be hurt by knowing that one of their teachers, how could you expect them to sit comfortably in the classroom when they know they're being taught by somebody who's Do you people not see what's at stake here on the slippery slope that we're standing on as we slide into something that is undemocratic? that is anti-intellectual, that is tyrannical. Now, a lot of people are going to get exercised just because I'm exercised about this. Because cancel culture is a trope that right-wingers are using in order to tamp down social justice advocacy. I'm fighting for the foundation of our civilization here. And there's something else. And we need to talk about this at more length in another show. This argument that it's not the intent, it's the impact, is treated as a mic drop, but it isn't, because everybody knows that the next question is, why does it have that impact? And in some cases, there's no point in dwelling on it. But in this case, the idea that if you even use the N-word in reference, Black people are injured and are supposed to fall to pieces, that's rather new, and it doesn't necessarily make sense. And so, okay, that's That's now the impact. In other words, there's been a kind of an informal decision that that's the impact now. But no, it does make sense to ask why. If a white person asks that we're now supposed to push them out a window. Okay, well, if I'm black, I mean, maybe you're just going to push me on the windowsill and threaten me a little bit. So I'm going to say, why? Why that? Now, it's one thing to have a pox on the use of the N-word. That's fine. I'm not saying that there was something wrong with that. Why would I? I know there are people listening to this who actually are wondering, is he? No, no. However, to use the N-word in reference, why in the world would we let white people have that kind of power? 
So the idea that is, that is that if somebody refers to the word one time, or let's face it, these days says something in Chinese that sounds like the word as actually happened at the yeah, University about of that. Southern California, or uses it in expurgation on a test. Well, then everybody is supposed to fall to pieces. Why allow white people that power? And remember, people need I say, to know that when you say in expurgation, that means in asterisk, 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 right, asterisk. Right. Why allow them that power? Now, why allow them the power in terms of just aiming the word at us? Sure. I get that. There's no argument necessary. But the things that we're talking about today, McNeil, the expurgation, the Mandarin, why are we allowing white people to have that kind of power over us? Because frankly, you talk about self-hating. To me, that looks like people with low senses of self-esteem. And if the idea is to say, yes, we have low senses of self-esteem because white people have been beating all over us, then I ask you to consider whether or not that's a little bit pathological. And yes, this time I do mean it. If that's how you feel, I think you need to seek therapy or, or counseling. Aren't we supposed to be a proud people? Now, proud people say you better not use that word against us, sure. But does a proud people fire Donald McNeil because he referred to the word, as opposed to maybe giving him a slap on the wrist, if you must do that. But why does that man's career have to end in disgrace because of that? It's as if we don't like ourselves. I find it to be a performed delicacy, performed and I delicacy. wish that people would stop it. I love that. I love that performed delicacy. That's very brilliant. It maybe, <laughs> it maybe should be the last way, but I've got to add this as a man in my 70s. To have worked at an institution for 40-plus years, and to then have been discarded like a soiled piece of toilet paper for uttering a word, that's contemptible. Yes. Okay, that's a labor relations point. Working people would understand it. People who belong to unions would understand it. What kind of loyalty is that? You discard that man and you, you uh, besmirch him as a bigot after he's given his whole life to your organization? That sickens me. I agree. That's how it makes me feel, too. John, I, go ahead. You know, I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave it there because I don't want to say something that I'm going to want to take back. Yes, that episode makes me furious, utterly furious. But I'm just going to leave it, leave it here for today. Okay, that's a wrap. The Black Guys. <laughs> See you next time. <laughs> See you, folks. <laughs>